Welcome to the Michael Jackson Case for Innocence podcast. My name is Cheryl. And I'm June. Today we're covering the final sex abuse case against Michael Jackson, the safe check allegations. You can find all source material for this episode on our website, michaeljacksoncaseforinnocence.com. Voice actor Gary Middleton returns to help us narrate the Safechuck case. The Safechuck case is quicker to review because James Safechuck's claims have been repeatedly dismissed in court and never progressed to the discovery phase. That means we don't have any deposition testimony, communications, or other documents to review. The primary evidence in the Safechuck case is his account of what happened, as described in his lawsuit. To try and back up Safechuck's claims, we can look at Jackson's known and public schedules. We can also listen to the accounts of those who were in similar situations to Safechuck as kids, going on tour with Jackson and spending time with him at Neverland. We're saving the bulk of our discussion about Safechuck's claims until the Leaving Neverland episodes, where more substantive deceit is revealed. So the Safechuck allegations will be told in one episode, covering the content of his lawsuit and, like Robson, showing how his legal moves are carefully calculated to result in the maximum financial compensation. First, a brief timeline of events regarding Safechuck's relationship with Michael Jackson. This information is based on Safechuck's second amended complaint, filed in September 2016. After the timeline, we'll get into the detailed claims of abuse in Safechuck's lawsuit. Safechuck states in his lawsuit that he grew up in L.A. with his mom and dad, and he starts acting in commercials around 1985 when he is seven years old. Two years later at age nine, Safechuck is hired for a Pepsi commercial with Michael Jackson, which he films in one day in January 1987. Safechuck hadn't met Jackson before the commercial, and neither Jackson nor his companies were involved in hiring him. Safechuck reports no private time with Jackson, but he gets to visit Jackson's trailer and talk with him around other people. Safechuck writes one or more letters to Jackson after the commercial, and Michael Jackson writes one letter back to Jimmy in March 1987. We don't know how many more letters Safechuck sent to Jackson, but there is no communication by Jackson after that letter until eight months later. It's around November of 87 when Jackson's assistant calls the Safechuck family to invite them to dinner at Havenhurst. Havenhurst is where Jackson lived at the time with his parents and siblings. The Safechucks reciprocate by inviting Jackson to dinner in December. James and his family then visit Havenhurst two more times before Jackson goes off to Florida in February 1988 to rehearse for the next leg of the bad tour. Over the next several months, the Safechuck family travels to Florida to see rehearsals of the bad tour. They travel to Hawaii for a Pepsi convention, and they travel to New York to go to a Broadway show with Jackson. The Safechucks are invited to go on the bad tour with Jackson over the summer, which may be a response to the Safechucks' hopes of getting Jimmy into the entertainment business. They tour in Europe with Jackson for a couple of months in the summer of 1988. Jimmy gets to lead local kids on stage at the end of each concert so they can dance and have fun. Safechuck states in his claim that the sex abuse begins as soon as they arrive in Paris to join Jackson on the bad tour in June 1988. He says the abuse continues throughout his time on the tour. Safechuck becomes very vague about when and where he sees Jackson after he returns from the bad tour, but says abuse occurs every time. 
In 1990, Safechuck says Jackson is preparing him for separation and seeing him less. He says the last time there was any abuse was in 1992 when he was 14. In 1994, Safechuck and his parents give witness statements in defense of Michael Jackson for the grand jury proceedings regarding the Chandler allegations. Safechuck rarely sees Jackson after this point. But Jackson still tries to help save Chuck with his film ambitions, with work on a few short film projects. After community college, Safe Chuck joins a band and gets into drugs. When his band breaks up in the mid 2000s, he says in his claim that he was directionless. Safe Chuck marries in 2007, and they have a son in 2010 and a daughter in 2013. Safe Chuck struggles with anxiety and depression. In April 2013. James Safechuck and his parents are sued for hundreds of thousands of dollars. A couple of weeks after he sued, Safechuck says in his claim that he was moved to seek therapy when he watched Ray Robson talk about abuse by Michael Jackson on the Today Show in May 2013. Four days after the Today Show broadcast on May 20th, he meets with a psychiatrist and says he is finally able to discuss the abuse. Safechuck meets with Robson's lawyers and files his own lawsuit against Michael Jackson a year later in May 2014. Now that we've covered the basic timeline of Safechuck's relationship with Jackson, we'll go through some of the contents of his lawsuit. This information is from his second amended complaint filed in September 2016. What I find in Safechuck's claim is a consistent pattern of misleading statements and improbable events. Some of these problematic statements are small and, in isolation, are not red flags. But it's the cumulative effect of one misleading statement after another that undermines his credibility. After Sakechuck films the Pepsi commercial with Jackson in early January 1987, there is no communication initiated by Michael Jackson or his associates. In his lawsuit, Sakechuck provides the letter Jackson sends him several months later in March. In the letter, Jackson thanks Safechuck for writing to him and says it's nice to hear from him again. We don't have the letter that was initially sent to Jackson by Safechuck, but we know his mom is interested in getting Jimmy into movies, and it's possible that in his letter he's asking Jackson if they can work together again. So just like Jordan Chandler, Gavin Arvizo, and Wade Robson, it's not Jackson or his companies who initially reaches out to make the connection, but in this case, Safechuck himself. And just like Jackson's three other accusers, Safechuck has aspirations in the entertainment industry. Here's what happens next, according to Safechuck's claim. After receiving Jackson's letter, Safechuck and his family were invited to dinner by Jackson to his home on Havenhurst Avenue. This wording is misleading because it makes it sound like right after they got the letter from Jackson, they got an invitation. Here it is again. After receiving Jackson's letter. Safechuck and his family were invited to dinner by Jackson to his home on Havenhurst Avenue. The complaint leaves out that the invitation to dinner comes eight months after receiving the letter. We have no idea how many more letters Safechuck writes to Jackson, but we know there is no contact from Jackson's side until eight months later. This time span discrepancy may seem like a small oversight in Safechuck's claim, but the problem is his entire lawsuit is filled with these misleading statements. And I want to share enough examples to show you that this lack of transparency is a pattern. Safechuck continues in his claim: The invitation was made by Jackson through Jolie Levine, Jackson's then personal assistant who works for MJJ Productions. 
In this passage, Safechuck is highlighting the role of Jackson's assistant as an employee of MJJ Productions because it's necessary for him to show that Jackson's companies were involved in the alleged abuse if he wants to win his lawsuit. So the Safechucks have dinner with Jackson at Havenhurst in early November 1987 when Jackson's on break from the bad tour. The Safechucks haven't seen Jackson since 10 months earlier at the Pepsi shoot. Safechuck continues in his claim. Shortly after their first visit to the Havenhurst house on Thanksgiving Day, Safechuck was on the telephone with Jackson. This is awkward wording. Safechuck was on the phone with Jackson. The only reason to use this wording is to obscure the fact that it was Safechuck calling Jackson, or else he would have stated clearly that Jackson called him, as he does later on. The purpose of the call is to reciprocate the dinner invitation, so it makes sense that the Safechucks are the ones to call and ask. Here's more about the phone call from the claim. Safechuck's parents suggested that Jimmy invite Jackson to come over to their home. Jackson said yes, and Safechuck and his parents drove over to the Havenhurst house to pick up Jackson and bring him back to their home. This statement leads the reader to believe that once they made the invitation on Thanksgiving and Jackson said yes, his parents drove right over that day to pick him up. Here it is again. Safechuck's parents suggested that Jimmy invite Jackson to come over to their home. Jackson said yes, and Safechuck and his parents drove over to the Havenhurst house to pick up Jackson and bring him back to their home. This helps promote the narrative that Jackson was in constant contact as part of his alleged grooming. But Jackson was in Australia on the bad tour and wouldn't be home for several more weeks. Not as big a gap as the eight months between the letter until the first dinner. But consistently misrepresenting timelines makes me wary at the outset of Safechuck's lawsuit. Safechuck will only use specific dates when it suits his narrative. He could easily find out Jackson's schedule and include dates like he does when it helps his case, but it would weaken his story to have so many gaps in between visits. Safechuck details two more visits to the Havenhurst home over December and January. There are several events with Jackson in the first quarter of 1988 that are suspiciously placed out of order by Safechuck. This is an apparent attempt to promote his gradual grooming narrative. He doesn't just reorder them in his lawsuit, but he selectively adds dates on one trip and avoids dates on the others. Here's the order in his lawsuit. Safechuck says that in 1988, he attends the Pepsi convention with Jackson in Hawaii, where they are featuring Jimmy's Pepsi commercial with Jackson. Although he and his mother may not have remembered the exact date, it was a 30-minute search for me to find that the convention was in February, and likely over the weekend of February 5th. It bothers me that Safechuck avoids including this detail when he's had years to get his story straight. On this trip to Hawaii, Safechuck says Jackson asks if he can stay in his hotel room, but says his mom would not permit it. The next event in Safechuck's lawsuit chronology is the family's trip to New York to join Jackson and Liza Minnelli at the Phantom of the Opera. Here, Safechuck is specific, March 11, 1988 likely because there are pictures and major newspaper coverage of Jackson's attendance. Safechuck states that Jackson asks if Jimmy could stay in his room, but his mother again says no. Safechuck then states that in or around 1988, the Safechucks visit the bad tour rehearsals in Florida. He states that this is the first time he stays with Jackson on a trip, implying that Jackson was grooming his parents on the first two trips 
to finally relent on this one. However, the bad tour rehearsals actually came a month before the New York Opera visit, around the same time as the Pepsi convention. This took less than an hour for me to confirm through research of TV coverage and newspaper articles at the time. Safejuck is filing a legal claim and should be trying to make it as accurate as he can, but he sticks to the vague in or around 1988 when mentioning the rehearsals. It appears that Safechuck is trying to avoid the weaker narrative that he stayed with Jackson on one trip, but not on the following trip a month later. This tactic of reordering events to promote a misleading grooming narrative will continue in the Leaving Neverland documentary with more blatant trickery, which we'll cover in the next episode. Early in 1988, Jackson invited the Safechuck family to join him on the bad tour that summer. Safechuck's claim next includes seven paragraphs about his time on the bad tour. Here's Safechuck's words in his lawsuit. Safechuck spent six months on the bad tour, accompanied by his mother. His father also joined at certain points of the tour. Safechuck joined Jackson in June in Europe and stayed on the tour through December, where it concluded in Japan. During that six-month period, Safechuck returned to the U.S. to go back to school for several months. For the Japan portion of the tour, Safechuck received course and homework from his school so that he could keep up his studies. It's misleading for Safechuck to say up front that he spent six months on the bad tour. We know from Safechuck that he and his family joined Jackson on June 25th, but by later August they were not with him because Jackson was with his mom for part of the tour in England and returned with her in September to show her Neverland. So it makes sense that by sometime in August, Safechuck was home and ready to go to school for the several months that he mentions, until the Japan part of the tour started December 9th. His claim only states that it was the Japan part of the tour that he got his school assignments to keep up with his studies, implying that he is in school in September, October, and November. So instead of six months as he first claims, the actual total time on the tour appears to be two and a half months. This length of time on the tour with Jackson is consistent with the accounts of other friends who joined him at various times, such as Jimmy Osmond, Deepak Chopra's son, Brett Barnes, Frank Cassio, and Jackson's nephews. They've all said that they neither saw nor experienced anything inappropriate, and that going on tour was the experience of a lifetime. Safechuck states in his complaint that he performed nightly with Jackson on stage, but was not paid for his services. He's trying to make the case that MJJ Productions hired him but didn't pay him. During his time on tour, Safechuck would lead a group of local kids on stage to freestyle dance at the end of the show. He's suggesting now that this was an official job. But from court documents, we find out that Safechuck was not hired by MJJ Productions as he claims. This was apparently an opportunity that Jackson offered to him because of his interest in working in the entertainment business. Knowing all of the misleading statements in Safechuck's lawsuit, this unfounded claim of expecting payment to dance with kids at the end of the show has an air of entitlement to it. I'm sure at the time, Safechuck and his parents were thrilled to take advantage of seeing the world, meeting celebrities, having all their expenses paid for, and getting to go on stage with Jackson. But it was not an official job, as he's now trying to claim, as a means to get compensation. Safechuck next details the beginning of his alleged abuse, with dates this time. The first incident of sexual abuse occurred during the Paris portion of the bad tour in June 25th to 29th, 
1988. After the first incident of sexual abuse, Safechuck began sleeping in Jackson's room in bed with him on a regular basis during the rest of the bad tour. Safechuck says he's introduced to masturbation and that he's rewarded with jewelry and was taught code words to use when in public. Safechuck continues in his claim that Jackson and his companies organized and paid for all hotel and other accommodations. And he again points out the name of Jackson's assistant, Jolie Levine, because he needs specific people to be accountable in order to qualify for compensation. Jolie Levine worked for MJJ Productions for about two years and was Jackson's assistant on the bad tour. She is mentioned by name in Safechuck's lawsuit and gave a deposition in 2016 for his lawsuit. She testifies that she never believed Jackson was a pedophile, never saw him touch a child in an inappropriate way, nor saw any interaction with a child that made her uncomfortable. Levine states that she always packed up Jackson's room whenever they moved to a different city so she saw everything. But she says she never saw pornography or photos of children or anything suspicious. Most convincing to me is the fact that she invited her own son, Yoshi, to join her on tour that summer, who was around Safechuck's age, and actually met Safechuck and his parents. So Jackson's own personal assistant on this tour, who knew what Jackson was doing at all times and was in his room daily, had no issue with her own son spending unsupervised time with Jackson. Yoshi testified in Robson's case that he never experienced any wrongdoing by Jackson. He thought Jackson was a big kid, and thought Robson and Safechuck's case was all about money. Moving along in Safechuck's claim, he states the following. The bad tour ended in December 1988. Jackson then flew Safechuck to New York to spend time alone with him after Jackson performed at the Grammys in February 1989. Safechuck traveled by himself. So far, I've highlighted some small-scale misleading statements by Safechuck used to promote his grooming narrative. But this statement about being abused after Jackson's performance at the Grammys in New York is a major blunder, and to me, a clear indicator of Safechuck's deceit. Safechuck implies that it was a big deal to fly alone to New York to join Jackson after his Grammy performance in 1989. He specifies that this trip happened soon after the end of the bad tour. He claims he was abused in Jackson's hotel room. The problem here is that the Grammys were held in L.A. in 1989, not in New York. And Jackson didn't perform at the 89 Grammys. So Safechuck's claim of this big trip traveling alone to New York to see him after his 1989 Grammy performance is impossible. Jackson only performed once at the Grammys. But it was the year prior, in early March 1988. His performance was a major event, covered widely in the media, but March 1988 is many months before Safechuck joins Jackson on the bad tour when he says the abuse first started. This 1988 Grammy performance was held a couple weeks before Safechuck and his parents flew to New York to see Phantom of the Opera with Jackson and Liza Minnelli. But at that time, Safechuck says his mom would not allow him to stay with Jackson so it doesn't make any sense that his mom would have allowed him to fly alone and stay with Jackson two weeks before that trip. I wondered if maybe he mixed it up with the following year, 1990. But the Grammys were held in L.A. in 1990, and Jackson did not even attend the event. Additionally, I checked to see if there were any other award ceremony performances in New York in 1989. 
but in 89, Jackson only attended the AMA Awards, the Black Radio Music Awards, and the Soul Train Awards, yet all were in LA. None had performances by Jackson, and none were in February. Jackson's only New York performances in 88, 89, or 90 were in March 1988, with the widely covered Grammy performance, plus multiple dates performing at Madison Square Garden. All of these were well before Safechuck claims the abuse started on the Bad Tour. Safechuck's mother should be fully aware of these dates because she would have to approve his flying alone to New York for the first time. This is not just a matter of his memory. Safechuck's story about flying alone to New York and then being abused in Jackson's hotel room after his famous Grammy performance in 1989, that was actually in 1988. Is damaging to the credibility of Safechuck's claim that he's sworn under oath to be true. The fact that he doesn't even bother to date check his own story suggests to me that he was taking a page out of the Chandler's playbook, making his allegations as salacious as possible in an attempt to pressure the Jackson estate into settling his claim. A settlement means he wouldn't have to back up his story. What's also notable to me is that this supposed meetup with Jackson at the Grammys is the only specific time he mentions seeing Jackson in 1989, and we know it to be untrue. From this point on in Safechuck's claim, he gets very vague about when he was with Jackson, but just says abuse occurs every time. Safechuck states that Jackson would instruct him to lie about their relationship. And would repeat over and over again that it was Safechuck's idea to participate in the sexual acts. He says Jackson would drill that idea into him repeatedly, in person and in his phone calls. But if Jackson was consistently threatening Safechuck and telling him over and over again that it was okay to lie, this should be very confusing for a young boy. The abuse itself and the constant threats would have to be very traumatizing. And although avoiding disclosure is not uncommon in child molestation victims, there are recognized signs that may indicate sex abuse. From the Stop It Now Child Advocacy site, these signs include withdrawal, new fears, mood swings, rage, sleep, or eating issues. I find it unlikely that his mother, who he was very close to and who doted on Safechuck, especially as her only child. Wouldn't pick up on some of those signs or conflicted feelings after spending time with Jackson, but when we hear from his mom later in leaving Neverland, she doesn't report anything suspicious about her son's behavior during that time period, even upon later reflection. And it would be extremely risky for Jackson to be calling Safechuck, especially after the Chandler allegations, when his parents would be most suspicious. His mother could be standing by, listening, or even recording the call. There were many times when people have recorded Jackson secretly, underhandedly, only for Jackson to find out later. So he would know not to say anything suspicious over the phone, as Safechuck alleges. It seems an unlikely behavior by someone who's being charged with running the most sophisticated child sex abuse procurement organization. I've listened to some of these secret recordings of Jackson that are posted publicly, and there's nothing iffy, creepy, threatening, or odd. The most amazing thing about these calls is how ordinary they are, and how consistent they are with the kinds of conversations Jackson's close friends talk about—that he could talk for hours about simple everyday things. 
Next in Safechuck's claim, he brings up statements from the same Chandler-era witnesses as in Wade Robson's case, Mark Kindoy, Charlie Michaels, and Blanca Francia. We're not going to replay their stories again, but just like in Robson's case, using these unreliable witnesses only degrades the credibility of Safechuck's claims. Safechuck describes additional intimidation and threats. He says Jackson would run drills with him, practicing putting on his clothes very fast and running away quietly so people would not hear them. He says Jackson engaged in an ongoing campaign to instill fear by repeatedly telling Safechuck that if anyone found out about what they were doing, their futures would be over. He says Jackson tells him this consistently. Threats and manipulation are key points to get around filing deadlines for his lawsuit. If Safechuck was too frightened to disclose because of Jackson's threats, his deadline for filing a lawsuit might be extended. Safechuck says in his claim that Jackson always told him that he would take care of him. This is important to include because of his narrative that Jackson owes him something. In 1990, when Safechuck states that he started puberty at age 12, he says Jackson began to prepare Safechuck for separation and that Jackson said he would have other friends. Safechuck purposely uses the term started puberty at age 12 because it's crucial to his claim that Jackson loses interest at this stage and prefers younger boys. And it's also important for Safechuck that Jackson has other friends, as he terms it, because he's alleging Jackson's companies are part of a sophisticated child procurement organization, which requires lots of abuse victims. He describes how at this stage Jackson was spending time with a younger boy, meaning Brett Barnes, and Safechuck was jealous. He says Barnes would now spend the night in Jackson's bedroom instead of Safechuck when he visited Jackson's condo in L.A. with other kids. Safechuck says when he was alone with Jackson in his L.A. condo, Jackson would serve him wine and they would watch porn films, some of which showed children masturbating. He also says Jackson showed him pornographic books that he called foreign books. The wine and child pornography claims are notable for a number of reasons. First of all, although Safechuck is the most recent accuser, in chronology, he would be the first victim. Yet the acts he is alleging are much more aggressive than the later alleged victims Chandler and Arviso, in which there was nothing beyond oral sex for Chandler and masturbation for Arviso. Jordan Chandler never alleged alcohol or any kind of porn. We first see wine and porn alleged by Gavin Arviso in 2003, but it's legal heterosexual porn for men. So it's only with Safechuck that we hear about watching child pornography. We know that no child pornography was found in any of the many unannounced raids in 1993 or 2003. Prosecutor Ron Zonin himself stated to People magazine about the raid. There was no child pornography. There were no videos involving children. And none of the disgruntled Jackson employees ever testified to hiding, seeing, or hearing about child pornography. The only prior source for Safechuck's details about watching child pornography is from pedophile sympathizer Victor Gutierrez in his book, Michael Jackson Was My Lover, The Secret Diary of Jordan Chandler, which is clearly a work of fiction as we covered in the Chandler episodes. Gutierrez, who by his own admission was obsessed with Jackson and had no compunction about lying in his stories, claims that Jackson watched movies where children ran around naked and masturbated. Gutierrez also said these were films with foreign themes, 
similar in language to Safechuck's foreign books, with Jackson showing him films with children masturbating. If Safechuck is making false allegations, he's had plenty of time to study up on prior stories about Jackson, from the tabloids, the Chandlers, the Arvizos, and Victor Gutierrez, to be sure he includes familiar elements. There's another story in Safechuck's complaint about Jackson inserting a finger into his anus, and Safechuck tells him to stop. The same scenario is written about in Gutierrez's book, but about Chandler, who tells Jackson to stop. However, Jordan Chandler never actually made such accusations in his detailed declarations, and the Chandlers have disavowed any connection to Gutierrez's book, and never said there was a diary by Jordan. And Gutierrez has never produced a diary to corroborate his book. There are other similarities to Gutierrez's book that we'll cover when we get to the next episode on Leaving Neverland. Safechuck says that in 1992 he goes to the set of the Jam video with Wade Robson and Brett Barnes. Safechuck gets upset and cries because he sees Barnes gets to stay with Jackson in his hotel room. Next in his claim, Safechuck says when he fully reached puberty, the abuse stopped, and there was no molestation after 1992 when he was 14. During the 1993 Chandler scandal, Safechuck and his parents provide a witness statement supporting Jackson's innocence. And answer police interrogations. To help give Safechuck experience in film, he's hired to intern on Jackson's history promo video in 1994, and in 1995 he works as an intern on the Earth Song video. This is several years after the alleged abuse. Safechuck says Jackson was a large presence in his life, even when they weren't seeing each other after the abuse stopped. He says it was Jackson who decided Safechuck shouldn't pursue school and should go into directing. He says Jackson told him he didn't need to go to college and convinced his parents to take him out of AP classes. Safechuck also states that Jackson prophesized there would be a line around the block to see Jimmy's movies. The prophecy element is similar to Wade Robson and ties in with the brainwashing narrative and being owed compensation for lost earnings. An ongoing theme in Safechuck's lawsuit is a bitterness against Jackson that, like Robson, seems to have more to do with his career than sexual abuse. Safechuck complains about Jackson not fulfilling his promises to help him in his career, and blames Jackson for his not getting a better college education. I was never able to do that, and was never able to get the university education I had always wanted because of Jackson's overpowering influence over me and my parents. These stories about Safechuck's education took place well after the alleged abuse, and he asserts that Jackson was controlling his life even though he wasn't around. Safechuck uses these stories to support his claim that he needs to be compensated for past, present, and future lost earnings. This story about Michael Jackson discouraging Safechuck away from academics stood out to me because of how starkly it contrasts with the accounts of others who knew Jackson when they were kids. Frank Cassio and his brother went on tour for months with Jackson when they were kids. In his book, My Friend Michael, he says Jackson encouraged him to take his studies more seriously. He taught me to pursue knowledge. He encouraged me to study. He told me to be humble and to respect my parents, especially my mother. He inspired me to be the best that I could be. Unlike Safechuck's narrative of Jackson sabotaging his education and encouraging dependence. Frank's account matches many others when describing how Jackson encouraged education and independent thinking. 
We'll get to more of these accounts in season two of this podcast. In 2003, when the Arviso allegations became public, Safechuck says he increases his drug usage. At that time, the band he had been playing in was breaking up, and he wasn't sure what to do with his life. Safechuck is around 27 at the time of Jackson's trial in 2005, and he claims that Jackson and his attorneys called to ask him to testify. Safechuck says Jackson got angrier than he had ever heard him and threatened him when Safechuck said he wouldn't testify. Because they hadn't been in contact for years, the Jackson trial gives Safechuck the opportunity to allege a more recent occurrence of threats. And threats are the reason he gives for not disclosing, and are important to get around the statute of limitations. Safechuck also states in his claim that during the course of the 2005 trial, he gets a call from Jackson's assistant, who is an employee of MJJ Productions, saying that he needs to testify. It's helpful to his case to have specific employees involved in his narrative of threats. Safechuck then says that towards the end of the trial, Jackson calls, wanting to meet with him in person about testifying. There are a lot of problems with Safechuck's assertions about Jackson's threats during his trial. Scott Ross was the investigator hired by Jackson's attorney for the trial. Ross has challenged the claims of Safechuck, saying there's no way a personal assistant would be calling witnesses because it would put her at risk of being made a witness. He says if anyone was going to call witnesses, it was him. More importantly, Scott Ross and the Jackson estate have both explained that the judge in 2005 prohibited the prosecution from allowing evidence regarding alleged molestation of Safechuck. Ross is adamant that Safechuck was not on the witness list, and they couldn't call him as a witness even if they wanted to because of this ruling. Ross says Jackson would have known about this ruling because he spent hours every day talking to Mesero's partner, Susan Yu, discussing every legal detail. Here's Ross himself on this issue in a 2021 Vlad TV interview, which I edited for brevity. I, I was told that this, this Jimmy Safechuck, James Safechuck person, okay, now, you he, interviewed him also. I did trial. not. Oh, you did? Absolutely not. Okay. He was a total non-entity. The judge, again, you know, pretrial motions, motions in limine are discussed long before the trial, sometimes a day, sometimes months. James Safechuck was a non-entity. I've heard rumors that Michael was calling him every day. I've heard rumors that Michael was begging him to testify. He wasn't on the witness list. He was never going to be able to testify. Michael had no control over it. Every day at the end of each trial day, Michael spent hours on the phone with Susan Yu. You know, she was constantly on the phone with him trying to explain the situation. I, I have no idea when he would have even had time to call Jimmy Safechuck. Hmm. Um, you know, my argument would be that there are phone records. Where's the records? Because he's up in Santa Maria. Safechuck lives in the Valley. Where are the records that these conversations are going on back and forth? Again, none of that materialized. But for Jimmy Safechuck, Never an issue, never an entity. I'll give you an example. Go back to Wade Robson for a second. If we thought for one second that Wade did not want to testify, when he says he was forced to testify because of the subpoena, when you subpoena somebody and you don't know what they're going to say and they don't want to testify, you end up with Debbie Rowe. The prosecution put up Debbie Rowe, who was not interviewed, thinking that she was going to get up there and say, Michael was this horrible person. She exploded in their face. She wouldn't take a meeting with me. I tried on numerous occasions to get in touch with her, and she wouldn't, she wouldn't talk to me. You know, okay, got it. That's fine. 
But the truth of the matter is, we certainly would not have served her and put her up on the stand not knowing what she was going to say. If we had forced Wade and Wade was lying to us and he exploded and said, okay, he did it. it it's just not that simple. So Safechuck claimed that he received phone calls by Jackson and his lawyers trying to force him to testify doesn't add up. Jackson's lawyer, Tom Mesereau, has described Jackson as a very thoughtful and deferential client who is aware of all the legal actions taking place and did everything he was advised to do. Macaulay Culkin tells a story in a 2020 interview that corroborates how Jackson respected proper procedure. Culkin said that during a bathroom break at the 2005 trial, the two bumped into each other, and Michael told him, We better not talk. I don't want to influence your testimony. And so Jackson and Culkin did not engage in conversation. Longtime Jackson friend Frank Cassio, who was a personal assistant to Jackson during the time of the Arvizo allegations, says in his book he was planning to testify, but it turned out that his testimony was not required, as confirmed by Tom Mesereau. Michael Jackson heard a false rumor that Cassio refused to testify on his behalf. Even though Jackson was upset when he thought Cassio refused, he never called Cassio, never threatened him, never showed him any anger but just stopped talking to him for a while. This kind of response is consistent with many accounts by people close to Jackson who say he was non-confrontational even when upset, and this led to many problems in his life. Frank Cassio was upset at Michael for believing the rumor and not talking to him directly. This was a recurring theme in Jackson's life. Because he repeatedly experienced friends turning on him for money, if Jackson suspected someone was selling out, he was likely to just stop talking to them rather than confront them. So these two stories by Calkin and Cassio are very different from the confrontational, threatening Jackson of Safechuck's account. But even if Safechuck were permitted as a witness, it's inconceivable to me that Jackson and his experienced and professional team would have pressured an unwilling and unstable Safechuck to testify. It makes no sense to put a reluctant witness on the stand and risk him wavering under a lengthy, intense cross-examination. Safechuck next states in his lawsuit that he stopped using drugs in 2006 and lapsed into a severe depression for several years. Safechuck gets married in 2007 and says he doesn't tell his wife about the abuse. During her pregnancy with her first child, he has prescribed medicine to help with anxiety. After the birth of his son in late 2010, he says he's worried he'll have pedophilic urges. Safechuck notes in his claim that he never correlated his anxiety with the abuse, because that would forfeit his ability to get around the statute of limitations. Safechuck's second child is born in 2013. On April 26, 2013, according to court documents, James Safechuck and his parents are sued for hundreds of thousands of dollars. He's being sued for alleged failure to pay two of their business shareholders any profits during a three-year period from 2010 to 2013. Safechuck does not include in his lawsuit any information about being sued himself. A couple of weeks after Safechuck is sued, Safechuck says he was moved to seek therapy after seeing Robson on the Today Show in May 2013. On May 20, 2013, six days after he found out he was being sued, and four days after Robson's TV interview, Safechuck said he met with a psychiatrist and discussed his alleged abuse by Jackson for the first time. He then meets with Robson's lawyers and files his first claim in 2014. 
The timing between Safechuck being sued and filing a lawsuit may be coincidental, but it is suspicious given all the problems with Safechuck's claim. Having reviewed the content of Safechuck's claim, we're now going to cover some of the legal aspects of his case. What's striking to me about the story presented in Safechuck's legal claims is how it perfectly matches just the parameters needed for a payout. This helps me understand why he included so many misleading, false, and illogical statements in his lawsuit. It's clearly designed to meet the legal criteria necessary to get compensation from Jackson's estate. Safechuck files two claims, just like Wade Robson, a creditor's claim, and a civil lawsuit. A creditor's claim deals with the debts of a deceased person through their estate. Just like Wade Robson, Safechuck attempts to use equitable estoppel to get around the fact that he missed the deadline for filing a creditor's claim. In order to argue for the use of equitable estoppel, Safechuck must show that he believed Jackson's threats, that he would go to jail if anyone found out, and he also needs to show that he was unaware that Jackson's behavior was abuse. This explains the proliferation of statements in his lawsuit about Jackson threatening him, that his life will be over if anyone finds out. And it explains the improbable claim that Safechuck, as a man in his 30s, says he still believed he had a chance to go to jail as a child abuse victim. This attempt to use equitable estoppel does not work. The judge explains that it would have to be threats by the state executors or its beneficiaries to make this legal move work not threats by Jackson himself. His probate case is dismissed in 2017. Safechuck also files a civil lawsuit, working with the same lawyers as Wade Robson. Just like in Robson's case, if Safechuck wants money from his civil claim, he can't sue a deceased person. So he has to sue Jackson's companies. Safechuck claims in his lawsuit that Jackson used his companies to facilitate the wrongful conduct and that through MJJ Productions and MJJ Ventures, Jackson coordinated and paid for Safechuck to train and learn about filmmaking and employed Safechuck to work on Jackson's videos. And just like in the Robson case, these claims of employment and training are misleading. The judge questions why the Jackson companies would have had any kind of duty of care towards Safechuck because there was no employment relationship at the time of the alleged abuse. So from this judgment, we learn that Safechuck's statement that he was employed by Jackson's company on the bad tour is false, as shown through court documents. The actual employment began well after the alleged abuse, as internship work on a few short films when he was older. The judge states that Safechuck first needed to establish that Jackson's companies had a duty of care towards him and gives him 30 days to amend his complaint. Safechuck files his second amended complaint and again states, under penalty of perjury, that he was employed by Jackson's companies at all relevant times, meaning during the time of the alleged abuse on the bad tour. However, the estate says that this is a provable falsehood since Safechuck was not hired until 1994 for the temporary film work, two years after the alleged abuse had ended. At one point in his complaint, Safechuck attempts to portray Jackson's companies as a school, which the judge finds confusing. Safechuck provides no supporting evidence for this claim. Safechuck also alleges that Jackson's companies were mandated reporters by implying he ran youth programs, but the judge states that nothing supports that claim. 
In his ruling in 2017, the judge focuses on the issue of control. Safechuck is required to show that Jackson's companies had legal control over Jackson and had prior knowledge of any wrongdoing. The estate demonstrated that Jackson was the 100% shareholder, owner, and president and had full control over the company's activities. The judge rules in favor of the estate, but gives Safechuck 15 days to amend his complaint. In his third amended complaint, Safechuck adds the assertion that an unnamed board of directors of Jackson's companies had authority over Jackson. This is another claim that's easy to disprove, since Jackson was the 100% shareholder in his companies. Safechuck also incredibly asserts that Michael Jackson, in his role as agent to his own company, had a duty to warn himself about himself. The judge rules in favor of the Jackson estate in June 2017 and dismisses Safechuck's case. The California law that took effect in January 2020, allowing sex abuse victims to sue until they're 40 versus 26, revived Safechuck's lawsuit. However, in October 2020, Safechuck's case was again dismissed. Among other conclusions, Judge Young rules that Safechuck did not have employment with Jackson's companies in the time period of alleged abuse, and Safechuck admits he has no additional facts to support his employment claims. The judge concludes that even if he did have employment with the companies, Safechuck is unable to support the claim that these companies had any legal control over Michael Jackson. Here's a summary of the problems in Safechuck's claims. He demonstrates lack of transparency about who reached out first after filming the Pepsi commercial. He misleads about the timing of the Havenhurst dinner, making it look as if it immediately followed Jackson's letter when it was actually eight months later. He demonstrates lack of transparency regarding who initiated the Safechuck's call to Jackson after the Havenhurst dinner. He misleads about the timing of the dinner at the Safechucks, making it look as if the dinner immediately followed the Safechucks phone call, when it was actually weeks later. He falsely claims to have been employed by Jackson on the bad tour in order to pursue monetary damages from Jackson's companies. He misleadingly reorders his trip to the bad tour rehearsals until after the trip to New York, in an apparent effort to create a more logical progression of grooming. He misleadingly claims up front to have spent six months on the bad tour when the actual time was about two and a half months. He makes the suggestive claim that he performed on stage nightly with Jackson on the bad tour, but didn't get paid for his services, even though he was never hired for the tour. He impossibly claims that soon after the bad tour ended, he next saw Jackson after his performance at the Grammys in February 1989. He says he flew out to New York alone, and the sex abuse continued in the hotel room. However, Jackson only performed at the Grammys in March 1988, before there was any abuse alleged, and before Safechuck's mother allowed him to stay with Jackson. He claims that Jackson threatened and scared him repeatedly, saying that they'd go to jail if anyone found out. However, there were no signs of this fear or conflict reported by anyone, including his mother, even upon reflection and he had no problems getting through the high-pressure police interviews in 1993 surrounding the Chandler allegations. The only other person to corroborate threatening phone calls is Wade Robson, who met with Safechuck when he first joined with Robson's lawyers to file his claim. Threats were needed in their narrative to try and get around filing deadlines. 
but this is at odds with the conflict aversion described by many of Jackson's friends, who say he had a hard time saying no to people and consistently avoided confrontation. He uses third-party statements from discredited witnesses to support his lawsuit claims, such as Marquindoy, Charlie Michaels, and Blanca Francia. He's the only one of the accusers to claim Jackson showed him child pornography. His phrasing of foreign books and the descriptions of the child pornography films are similar to those in the fictional book by Victor Gutierrez. He claims that Brett Barnes took his place as the next sex abuse victim for Jackson, even though he never saw any inappropriate behavior toward Barnes, who has consistently and adamantly denied any abuse. He claims that Jackson, his lawyers, and his assistant called and harassed him to testify in the 2005 criminal trial. However, the judge ruled that evidence regarding Safechuck was not allowed. It also doesn't make sense that Jackson's experienced legal team would put an unwilling witness before the jury, especially when they would be so rigorously cross-examined. He claims that Jackson called him one to two times per year to threaten him, and says these phone calls were enough to keep him scared and not ever want to disclose anything. Safechuck's claims of Jackson threatening him to keep quiet matched the narrative needed for him to get around the deadline of a late claim. He expresses in his lawsuit no relief upon Jackson's death that he no longer had to endure these oppressive and scary phone calls, calls that he said just hearing Jackson's voice put him in panic mode. He only says he was sad, possibly because they were witnesses like his wife, who never saw anything but sadness. He wrongly claims that Jackson had official youth programs, a school, and mentorships. He disingenuously claims that an unnamed board of directors in Jackson's company had control over Jackson, even though the evidence is irrefutable that Jackson was the 100% shareholder, and therefore no one had any legal control over Jackson. Through the claims that James Safechuck makes in his lawsuit, we can see that he's willing to repeatedly make misleading and false statements in order to pursue monetary compensation from Michael Jackson's companies. My conclusion is that I can't trust Safechuck's words in his lawsuit, and when I put his dubious claims alongside the accounts of Jordan Chandler, Gavin Arvizo, and Wade Robson, I see a pattern of deceit for money and a pattern of entitlement regarding what they think Michael Jackson should have done for them. This episode focused on Safechuck's deceptiveness and lack of credibility. Stay tuned for when we make our case for Jackson's complete innocence in future episodes, which summarize all the evidence. Next time, we turn to the documentary that started me on the path to researching the sex abuse claims against Michael Jackson, Leaving Neverland. The film features the allegations of Wade Robson and James Safechuck, and will take you through some of the deceptive tactics by filmmaker Dan Reed that mislead his audience and show him to have little interest in the truth of his own film. We'd like to thank the following sources that helped guide my mom's research. The Daily Michael, the MJJ Repository, and the Michael Jackson Allegations. You can find these and all other sources for this episode on our website, michaeljacksoncaseforinnocence.com. You can reach out to us through our website or on Twitter at case4innocence. Thank you for listening to the Michael Jackson Case for Innocence podcast.